This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. The story is that those women carried banners that said, we want bread and roses too. The bread was a symbol of money. And the roses, time to smell the roses, was the symbol of shorter hours. I'm Neil Harvey. John DeGraff and Annie Leonard look at time poverty and the politics of happiness on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Cancer surgeon and author Dr. Bernie Siegel says that pain is God's reset button. Sometimes it takes an intensely painful experience to jolt us out of our patterns, habits, and assumptions. The Great Recession of 2008 hit that button hard, resetting the economy of the United States to reveal a so-called jobless recovery, a new normal of widespread joblessness, underemployment, and low wages. It shook the country to the core, upending lives and families, and traumatizing an entire generation of young adults. But it has also revealed the true nature of a system that many believe is in dire need of change. The biggest question is, what is the economy for anyway? Is it a cycle of perpetual growth to produce and consume more and more stuff and spend more and more time working to get it? Or can we create growth within the natural limits of the planet to produce sufficiency and provide a high quality of life. Join us for Bread and Roses, Time Poverty, Super Wealth, and the Politics of Happiness with writers and media makers John DeGraff and Annie Leonard. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Somewhere along the line, the founding American ideal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness morphed into a 24-7 quest for material possessions and the almighty dollar. Yet as a nation, Americans are among the least happy people in the world, overworked and possessed by our possessions. The overworked treadmill not only threatens us, but also the environment, which simply can't support unlimited resource-hungry growth. At the same time, the wealth gap between the have-a-lots and everyone else is the most extreme of all developed nations. As painful and destructive as it has been for most of us, the Great Recession has provided a kind of intervention to take another look at what's really important in our lives. Many of us are finding time is not money, and time poverty is at the root of our blues. Perhaps time is on our side. John DeGraff is director of the nonprofit group Take Back Your Time, which studies solutions to time poverty, overwork, and overconsumption. His book, What's the Economy for Anyway?, examines the politics of happiness. John DeGraff. Back in 1972, a fellow named Jigme Wangchuk, who was at the time 16 years old, was crowned the new king of Bhutan. And after his coronation, a reporter came up to him and said, so what are you going to do to increase your country's gross national product? And King Wangchuk looked at him and he said, well, I don't think that's so important. I think that gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. Now, if he'd said that in the United States, we would have probably given a polite laugh or a smile, and we would have gone back to the business of making money. But the people in Bhutan take their king seriously. They actually revere the king. And they said, well, hey, what does this mean? 
grows national happiness. Can we actually operationalize such a concept? And so they have spent the last 30-plus years inviting some of the top scientists from all over the world to figure out what makes people happy and to tell the Bhutanese how their policies and their activities can actually improve happiness. De Graaf says the Bhutanese developed a comprehensive happiness survey that's being picked up for use around the world. De Graaf has written books and produced films that explore models of life in other countries where people are happier because they work less, consume less, and have more time for family, friends, and enjoyment, and whose societies have less wealth disparity. He's using the Bhutanese survey to quantify the happiness quotient of his hometown, Seattle, Washington. I'm involved here in Seattle with what's called the Seattle Area Happiness Initiative, or Say Hi for short. Um, and we're going to be doing this uh, survey. It looks at essentially nine areas of life that the experts have found are essential to making people happy. And those include physical health, mental health, time balance, which is, of course, the one I've been very concerned with. They include uh, environmental quality and access to nature. Yes, they do include standard of living or material standard, but that's only one of the nine. They include democratic governance, they include social connection, social relationships, uh, cultural vitality and access. DeGraff says we've got to find a way to slow down, to take our satisfaction in life more from having the time for relationships and connection with others, and less from stuff. Filmmaker, environmental advocate, and garbologist Annie Leonard agrees. She studied overconsumption for the past two decades. With her partners at Free Range Studios, she produced the runaway hit online video, The Story of Stuff, to illuminate the effects of our preoccupation with possessions, both on the environment and on people. Her finding? The best things in life aren't things. This is really fascinating. There's an emerging new science of happiness where people are researching what actually makes people happy. And in spite of what Madison Avenue will tell you, it's not the new iPod, even in that cool new color. It's not a flat screen television. It's not a car, even if it's a Prius. What really makes people happy, cross cultures, cross socioeconomic um, divisions all around the planet, what really makes people happy, number one, is the quality of our social relationships. Time with friends and family, a sense of meaning beyond oneself, coming together with others towards shared goals, but we're in this nut situation where we are working longer hours than in almost any other industrialized country, spending so much time shopping and alone watching screens that we're actually undermining, we're neglecting and undermining those very things that provide real happiness. So we have more stuff, but we have fewer friends. A quarter of the people in the United States say they now have no one to talk about personal problems with. A growing number of people don't know their neighbors. And I ask, what is the value of a brand new Pottery Barn dining room table if you don't have a gang of friends and neighbors to crowd around it? Make no mistake, many Americans are working crazy hours and two or three jobs just to put food on the table and a roof over our heads. Although the U.S. economy doubled over the past 25 years, an overwhelming majority of us saw our real incomes fall. Where does our wealth go? A tiny sliver of the population captures a very big slice of the pie. The richest 1% of the population controls 40% of our national wealth. Income distribution hasn't been this out of whack since the Great Depression. Nearly one in six Americans is jobless, while 40 million people live in poverty. 
The U.S. has the widest gap between rich and poor of any developed country. It boils down to the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few and distribution of poverty among the rest of us. And in the wake of the $13 trillion bank bailout on the public dole, the big banks are recording record profits. What's wrong with this picture? Despite this extreme and escalating inequality, John DeGraff asks us to contemplate the upside. He's found that, ironically, when people work less, we often live better and take better care of ourselves. As many of us have more time on our hands, we have time to reconsider the value of our time and how we want to use it. As people are working less, what we find is that they are exercising more. They are spending considerably more time with friends and family, sometimes because they need to simply for financial or emotional support. They're out gardening. We've seen an uh, uptick of about 40% in home gardening. They're volunteering, uh, something like an 11% increase in uh, people who are actually volunteering. And we know that's good for health because it's good for social connection. It builds social capital. We're seeing that uh, people are driving less. This is very, very important because it has resulted in a drop of about 25% in the traffic death toll, which had plateaued at around 40,000 a year, is now down to about 31,000 a year. Not only that, but the fact that people are driving less and that factories are not operating at full capacity means that we're putting less pollution into the air. And the result of that is that we're seeing uh, a decrease in respiratory illness and particularly children's asthma and things of that sort. So when you add all of this up, what you find is that for every 1% increase in unemployment that has occurred, we've actually seen a drop of about half a percent in the mortality rate. And that's really the number of people who die each year between the ages of 15 and 64. We've seen a drop in the death rate, largely because health has improved a little bit during the recession. And the importance of all of this is that we want to go back to full employment. We want people to work. We want people to have the opportunity to provide for their families and have a livelihood. But we don't necessarily want to go back to a situation that includes a lot of unhealthy overwork, uh, the new tobacco, as some, some scientists call it, where, where people are really pushing to the max. So what that tells me is that we ought to think about regaining full employment by sharing work and shortening working hours rather than simply trying to boost the number of full-time 40, 50, 60-hour-a-week jobs. The underlying truth, of course, is that quite apart from the effects of overwork on people, the earth simply can't sustain this trajectory of overconsumption. Ironically, Economic decline produces measurable, although temporary, benefits for the environment. Decreased manufacturing and shipping lessen air pollution and conserve fuel. We even see a decrease in the human carbon footprint, at least until the economy gets going again, or we make the switch to green energy and technologies. Given the outsized speed bump of 2008's Great Recession, perhaps we should take a real look at how to rebuild the economy with both people and planet in mind. If we try to simply grow our way out of this problem of unemployment and so forth, we're going to make the Gulf oil spill look like a picnic. DeGraff sees one part of the solution in reinventing the way Americans work. He points to innovative European models that put people first. 
Germany has a program called Kurzarbeit, which means short work. What the Germans do is that instead of having companies lay off workers when demand slackens, they have people reduce the hours of all the workers but keep those workers on. And then a fund kicks in that tops up the salaries of those workers who have had their time reduced. So they may go down to four days a week, but they earn as if they were working four and a half or four and three quarter days a week. They don't lose the full amount of the money. That helps them, obviously, but it also helps them transition to a different model and a different way of thinking about what they value in life. And they find that when they don't work as much, some of the things that we we do and that we spend money on are really defensive expenditures against the impacts of work. You know, you've got to hire so-and-so, you've got to do this, you've got to eat, eat more fast food and do all these kinds of things because you're in a hurry. Uh, all of those kinds of things are also problems for the environment. Uh, we use so many convenient products, so many use-it-once-and-throw-it-away products, so much heavy packaging, all of these kinds of things because, in, in large part, we're in a hurry and because our economy has become more and more fast-paced. So we have to think about turning that around, slowing down. So it's all of a piece. It all fits together, in my view. Simply uh, changing the technology as important as that is, just isn't enough to solve the whole problem. John DeGraff. When we return, more ideas and solutions that put people before profits. This is Bread and Roses, Time Poverty, Super Wealth, and the Politics of Happiness. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Radio is made possible in part by John Masters Organics. Feel good about looking good. Learn more at johnmasters.com. To explore more Bioneers radio shows and conference videos for free, visit bioneers.org. Working less and sharing the work is proven to help both people and planet. But American workers still face workplace policies that prevent such practices. Not so in other countries with higher rankings in the happiness survey. The Dutch have adopted a labor law called the Hours Adjustment Act. It was introduced there in 2000, and the idea has spread to Germany and several other European nations. Again, John DeGraff. What that law says is that if I, as an employee, can go to my employer and can say, I'd like to work less. I don't want to work 40 hours a week. I'd like to work 32 hours a week or 24 hours a week. And unless the employer can show that this would really create a financial hardship for the firm, that request needs to be granted. And it's granted in about 95% of the cases in the Netherlands. What happens then? Well, you, you make less money. 
but you keep your hourly salary because under European law, you can't pay part-timers less money than full-timers for the same kind of work. And you keep your hourly salary in the Netherlands. Your benefits like pensions and vacation time and so forth are prorated. You keep your health care because health care in every other industrial country in the world is a matter of right. And everybody gets it, and it's universal. The result of this is that uh, the Netherlands has the highest number of part-time workers in the world, roughly 40% of Dutch workers work part-time, and they do so by choice, not by necessity. There's no stigma about doing it. And overall, the Dutch work the shortest hours, working hours in the world, about four to 500 hours less each year than Americans work. Germany is following many of the same models. This is not killing their economy. In fact, quite the contrary. The German economy is doing very, very well. The unemployment rate has gone down instead of going up during the recession. The Germans have a great balance of trade. They've kept their manufacturing economy. They have a great savings rate. No matter what you look at, these folks are doing very, very well. They do well not only by working less, they also play more. The U.S. is one of the only developed nations that doesn't require companies to give workers paid vacation time. It's no surprise the No Vacation Nation rates poorly in studies of life satisfaction. John DeGraff says we have a lot to learn. Anne-Marie Widener, who's a researcher at Georgetown University who's got her Ph.D. in the Netherlands, did a whole number of studies interviewing Dutch parents and American parents and polling them about their life satisfaction. And she found that on virtually every issue you looked at, Dutch parents were substantially more satisfied with life than American parents. Every few years, UNICEF does a study about the welfare of children around the world. And in 2007, when that study came out, the Netherlands was ranked number one in the world in the welfare of children, largely because parents have time to spend with them. The United States, out of 21 major industrial countries that were studied in that study, the United States ranked 20th. Uh, we beat out barely the United Kingdom, but we were way, way down there. Um, one of the things that, that doctors know is that one of the best head starts in life for kids is early bonding with parents. Uh, it's certainly a reason why we have infinite child mortality rates that are double those in other industrial countries, for example. I mean, we, we're 45th in the world, according to the CIA, in infinite child mortality, for example. Uh, we're below countries like Bosnia and, you know, so forth. And we're, we're also below them in life expectancy, believe it or not. But in the U.S., these kinds of ideas are guaranteed to provoke one thing, a shriek of fire in the crowded economic theater, no new taxes. Yet in Europe, higher taxes, mainly on the rich, provide a level of security that no American below the top 1% has. John DeGraff points once again to the European model. Now, if you look at happiness and its connection to taxes, what you find is that Gallup does an annual survey called the Gallup Healthway Survey to determine what the happiest countries in the world are. They look at 140 countries. As Forbes magazine, no left-wing publication, pointed out, the U.S. didn't make the top 10. In fact, the top four countries in the poll were Denmark, Finland, the Netherlands, and Sweden. And then Forbes magazine pointed out 
that what those four countries have in common, particularly, is number one, they are among the world's most egalitarian countries. They have the smallest gap between rich and poor. The U.S. has the largest gap between rich and poor of any industrial country. They found that those uh, countries were companies that devoted great attention to work-life balance. They worked some of the shortest hours in the world. And finally, they found that, that, uh, contrary to what Forbes would believe, that these were actually the countries where people pay the highest taxes. And they get something for them. And they understand that, in fact, in these countries where people are paying higher taxes, they're working less, they're saving more, they have better health, and they're happier. So, you know, the sense that we're going to solve the problems of this emerging economy and this recession and all of this by simply slashing taxes more and more on wealthy Americans is just absolute nonsense. The disparity of wealth in the U.S. is extreme by any standard. Multi-billionaire Warren Buffett's tax rate is half that of his secretary. In fact, Buffett passionately supports higher taxes on the super-rich like himself. John DeGraff reminds us that historically the American labor movement fought long and hard to establish even the most minimal and basic protections workers today have taken for granted. Their rallying cry was bread and roses. The story is that this goes back to the January 11, 1912 Lawrence textile strike when uh, some 20,000 women speaking 25 languages poured out of the textile mills of Lawrence, Massachusetts into the wintry streets demanding an increase in pay from 16 to 18 cents an hour and a decrease in work from 56 hours a week to 54 hours a week. And the story is that those women carried banners that said, we want bread and roses too. And those were symbols. The bread was a symbol of money, of higher wages, which was, of course, a demand of the labor movement. And the roses, time to smell the roses, was the symbol of shorter hours, of, of, of time. And uh, the American labor movement was always concerned with both of those things up until about the 1950s, when we tended to put all the emphasis on wages and on money, and the roses were left to wilt. And I think it's time we water the roses again. Bread and roses, a living wage and time to smell the roses. Perhaps that sums up what most people still want. But in today's depleted world, the relentless pursuit of material wealth is busting the limits of our environment's ability to sustain us. Don't we want to give future generations a world where roses still grow? Annie Leonard says most Americans want both balanced personal and work lives and a healthy, sustainable environment. I was looking up online to see how many people in the United States these days say that they are active in or sympathize with environmental causes. It's 70%. 70%. That is enough people to make some serious change if we engage, if we work with people to move them from sympathizing with to being active about the environment. We got 70%. Let's change the system. percent is higher than the number of people who supported Martin Luther King, higher than the number of people who wanted to end slavery, higher than the number of people who wanted women to get the votes. Imagine if all those people had waited until they had 100% on board. Let's just go. The core of today's problems are structural. Right now, our global economic system is structured to value trashing the planet today more than preserving it for the future, to prioritize individual profit over public health and equity to give corporations many of the same rights of human beings. 
With 70% of the people, we can redesign the system so that doing the right thing becomes the default option. Many people ask me if I think we're going to change. Absolutely. Change is inevitable. You cannot keep using 1.4 planets worth of resources indefinitely. We are definitely going to change. The question is, are we going to change by design or by default? Now, either way, it's going to be some tough work and it's going to require some change. But if we change by design, we can be more intentional, more intelligent, more compassionate, more just about it. If we change by default, if we dig our heels in and say we're not budging, it's going to be really ugly. I like to liken it as a car that's turning directions, and we can either be at the steering wheel or get run over. But either way, the car is turning. Lots of people ask me what's the best way to get involved in hastening this change and making sure it's done sustainably and justly. Well, one of the good things about such a gigantic problem is that there are so many places to engage. There are so many ways to get involved that you don't even have to do something boring. So you should inventory your passion and your skills and find what turns you on. It's going to be a long haul, so it'll be a lot easier if you love your work. Now, for me, it's garbage. I, I get that that might not be it for, for all of you, but whatever it is, if it's sustainable food, if it's safe transportation, if it's healthcare reform, if it's ending those ridiculous wars, whatever it is, just dive on in. Because if we do, if we work together and just dive on in, we can not only save the planet, but we'll have a much better time doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Annie Leonard, creator of The Story of Stuff, and John DeGraff, director of Take Back Your Time, offering ways to create better economic health, restore the environment, and Embrace gross national happiness. It's not all that complicated. Bread and roses. Many more Bioneers radio programs and conference videos are available online for free at Bioneers.org, where you can also find out how to attend the annual Bioneers conference and local Bioneers satellite conferences near you. Bioneers voices are heard more widely with your support. Join by visiting Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Katherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by the Bee Eaters at beeaters.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0111. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and family-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.coop. 
also by Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, as well as by the generous support of listeners like you.